0: We're nearing the end of a six-month journey through Mark's gospel. Uh, This series, as you can see, if you can read the bit that goes around the the window, uh, has been called The Story That Changes Everything, and that's a phrase that I pinched from an Australian scholar called Ricky Watts, The Story That Changes Everything. Mark is the true story of the good news about Jesus Christ, and the key to the whole story is in our passage today. It is his cross. Now we've been building up to this cross through the whole book. And now the narrative slows down to an agonizing pace as we witness the final hours leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. Some people have dubbed this the King's Cross after the famous London Railway Station. It is the King's Cross. In this passage, we see Jesus referred to as King several times, even getting a mock crown made of thorns thrust onto his head and a purple robe, a royal robe, put onto him. Above his cross, the Romans place an ironic sign, the king of the Jews. And the irony is, they're right. He is the king. He says so himself in chapter 14, verse 61. And not just the king of the Jews, but the king of all people. In fact, The the claim to kingship that he makes there is so profound, they accuse him of blasphemy. Are you the Messiah? That means the chosen king, the son of the blessed one. I am, Jesus said, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. But how can God's king be subjected to such horrific treatment? In our text today, we see all these things done to Jesus. The dreadful miscarriage of justice. A painful betrayal from one of his closest friends, Peter. The fickle betrayal of all the crowds. A cynical decision by the Roman politician, Pilate, condemning Jesus to death and releasing a known murderer. A heinous scene of soldiers' barbarity to their prisoner. By the end of which, he's so weak he can't carry the crossbeam of his wooden cross. Then crucifixion, and death. But the most severe aspect of all Jesus' suffering is actually none of those things, but his abandonment by God, as his words from the cross reveal. This is the king. Now, there is too much here for us to cover in one week. I know that. But this is the time that we have. So let me encourage you to take this reading in the week ahead and meditate on it. Why not use it to prepare for Good Friday and Easter Sunday? There are six sections, six kind of clear um, uh, episodes in this reading. You could take one each day and meditate on it in the coming week. And I want to share three linked themes today. So uh, imagine we're we're looking at a cross-section of of a a beautiful piece of wood or, or something. And we're going to go across all of this passage using these three themes uh, my title, as you can see on here, is See How He Died, taken from uh, verse 39 at the end of the reading. They saw that the centurion saw how he died. And that's what the writer wants us to do. He wants us to see how he died. See the details, think on them, because even in the tiniest detail, we will learn much about Jesus. The three themes that cut across. This reading are the story of sin, suffering, and substitution. Sin, suffering, and substitution. So first of all, sin. What we see in this passage is a terrible exposure of the human condition. When God came down to earth, this is how we treated him. And if we're prepared to be honest, we will see ourselves in this text. First of all, we read about the Sanhedrin. This is the highest tribunal in Jewish Culture in in the Jewish nation, and it's we read there from verse fifty three to sixty five of a a a sham, a travesty of a legal process, an absolute joke. It didn't meet the standards of their own legal system. Jesus has no defence lawyer, and every witness who's brought in against him tells a different story. So by verse fifty five, it says they have no evidence. At one point, they even asked Jesus to testify against himself. The case ought to have been dismissed out of hand. But the authorities are determined to condemn him. So they rush it through and make a decision on the same night. Verse 64, they all condemned him as worthy of death. Now in the Sanhedrin, we see humankind's hatred of a God who would make absolute claims on them who would threaten our sovereignty over our own lives. They must get rid of him and push him out. And this is what human beings do all the time. Secondly, we see Peter. While all this is going on with the Sanhedrin, we would hope that this brave friend of Jesus, who's managed to come in pretty close, he's in the courtyard, we'd hope that he would stand by Jesus in his hour of need, wouldn't we? After all, Peter had vowed, vehemently that he would do so in chapter 14 verse 29 he said even if all fall away I won't I'm there for you Jesus and even at that point Jesus had known that Peter would crumble in fear and so he did the ironic comparison is that while Jesus endures the most intense pressure at the hands of the highest court in the country Peter wilts under pressure from a young servant girl so much for the big man We see in Peter the person who believes, but at their core is seeking their own glory story. Peter was very brave as long as he believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but Peter thought the Messiah was going to crush his enemies. And when he sees Jesus weak and dishonored and apparently failing, his courage drains away. You see, Peter at this point doesn't understand the meaning of the gospel, that the way to victory is the way of weakness. And death. So while Jesus is being cursed, Peter calls down curses upon himself. As Jesus is handed over to the guards, Peter is warming himself by the fire with the guards, cozying up to them. And then the rooster crows, and Peter remembers that Jesus had predicted he would deny him three times. And it says he broke down and wept. Thirdly, there's the crowds. Isn't their behavior absolutely bizarre? Just a few days before, they were all waving palm branches and laying down their cloaks on the ground and cheering Jesus on his way into Jerusalem, Hosanna. Then they were hanging on his every word in the temple courts, laughing and delighting at his wise answers. But now look at them. Chapter 15, verse 11, the chief priests can turn them with a few clever words, and they cry for Barabbas to be released, a known murderer. And Jesus, they have two words for him. Crucify him. Now we see in the crowds the lack of conviction that follows the majority opinion, that follows the crowd. Let me say, if you choose to follow Jesus Christ and identify with him, it will mean swimming against the tide, going against the grain, and few people are willing to pay the price of their own reputation. Fourthly, the soldiers. They make sport of Jesus. This is the unthinking cruelty of a gang of men who are bored and have a vulnerable person in front of them and incite each other to vicious behavior. In the cold light of day, it's absolutely unthinkable, isn't it? But who can say that we've never joined in with bullying, at some point, preyed on a weak person with the crowd? Friends, all of this is human nature. This is our condition. This is us. We're no better than them. At its worst, human nature is is a, a, a snarl of malice, hatred for God, detesting his sovereign claims, contempt for him. Even at its best, human nature is like Peter. When it comes to it, he sells out his dear Lord and friend. Fear and self-protection because he doesn't yet grasp the gospel. That it's not all about him. That the way to victory is weakness, dishonor and death. Paul, uh, some years later, was to sum all this up theologically. In his great letter to the Romans, chapter 8, verse 7, he wrote, The mind governed by the flesh, that's the natural mind, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. That's quite a verdict. I'm going to read it again. The mind governed by the flesh, our nature, is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. We don't have absolute free will, much as we'd like to think we do. We actually... Can't submit to God's law. We are by nature, we are not neutral, we are hostile to God. Now, do you believe that you are that bad? Have you come to acknowledge the Bible's verdict on you? The Church of England has a wonderful confession. I think it sums it up amazingly. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things we ought to have done. And we have done those things we ought not to have done. And there is no health in us. That's it. In a word, it's sin. And the result of our sin, secondly, is Jesus' suffering. Remember, these things are written down by Mark for our instruction to meditate on. Mark records even tiny little eyewitness details because they tell us something about Jesus. Think about some of the instances of suffering here. The the miscarriage of justice, being deprived of a fair trial by the highest court in the land, knowing that the most powerful people were out to destroy him. That's where it begins. Then the mockery, being spat on. Being blindfolded and taunted, a crown of thorns placed on his head. Jesus is insulted and scorned for the very things he is. They mock him and hit him with his blindfold on and say, prophesy, he is a prophet. They mock him on the cross and say, come down and save yourself, he is saving. They taunt him uh, as king of the Jews, he is the king. Mockery. Thirdly, violence. He was punched, battered on the head with a staff until he was too weak to carry his cross, then crucified. Jesus was stripped naked and nailed to a cross by his wrists and feet. And then it was dropped into a hole in the ground. The shock of that alone, we're told, would sometimes dislocate all someone's joints. And there he would hang until dead in public view, publicly shamed. And sometimes it would take days. But that was not the worst of it. The culmination of his suffering is what some people have said is the most awful and terrible question ever asked. Would you look with me at verse 34, chapter 15, verse 34. At three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me this shows his abandonment the eternal son of God who had lived in happy communion with God the father and the spirit through all eternity was now utterly forsaken totally alone Isaiah the prophet had spoken about this moment many years before he said it was the will of the Lord to crush him and cause him to suffer And here we get just a glimpse of what that meant. Jesus here is going through hell. Yet, even at this moment, we see Jesus' perfect obedience. Even in the moment of complete isolation, abandoned by God the Father, he doesn't scream at God or curse him. He uses the language of a believer. My God, why have you forsaken me? That was how he suffered. When he was truly abandoned... And we know that through it, underneath it all, in the deep wisdom of God, God was achieving a rescue for countless people. Jesus' suffering means the salvation of the world. So what does that mean for your suffering, friend? How do you know that your suffering right now isn't achieving something glorious in the deep purposes of God? You don't. Those who saw Jesus on the cross mocked him and they thought that God had abandoned him and on one level they were right, weren't they? But on another level, God was achieving something so amazing that it would change the course of the universe. So is it time for us to stop thinking that we have all the answers about our own suffering? Which is pride. Is it time for us to stop thinking that we have the right to be angry at God? Which is ridiculous. God doesn't owe you anything. Is it time for us to learn to accept what comes from the hand of a good father by sitting at the foot of Jesus' cross and thinking on his crucifixion? Jesus' suffering shows how all our suffering is redeemed in the wisdom and power of God. Joni erikson tarder was a sporty, active teenager. She was paralyzed from the neck down in her teens by a diving accident. Many years later, she wrote these words. Sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. He has chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. The more intense the pain, the closer his embrace. She predicted that one day we will stand amazed to see the top side of the tapestry and how God beautifully embroidered each circumstance into a pattern for our good. And his glory. She wrote, I sure hope, she's American, I sure hope I can bring this wheelchair to heaven. Now, I know that's not theologically correct. But I hope to bring it and put it in a little corner of heaven. And then, in my new, perfect, glorified body, standing on grateful, glorified legs, I'll stand next to my Savior, holding his nail-pierced hands. I'll say, thank you, Jesus, And he will know that I mean it because he knows me. He'll recognize me from the fellowship that we're now sharing in his sufferings. And I will say, Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble because that thing was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. It never would have happened had you not given me the bruising of the blessing of that wheelchair. See, Joni has grasped something deep in her heart that we need to grasp too. That God is a good, wise Lord all the time. He even redeems your suffering. The cross shows you that. Yet there's another level, even deeper, in the cross of Jesus, it is that he is here standing in for others. He is a substitute. So thirdly and finally, substitution. Now, you might say, well, where do we see this? In Mark's account, Mark doesn't particularly write theological words. He tells stories, doesn't he? You know, there's a very unlikely place where we read about substitution. It's the story of Barabbas. If you've closed your Bible, do open it again, page 1022, 1022. I'm going to read from Mark 15, verse 6. Now, it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the rebels who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do from them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to get Pilate to release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder Crucify him. And wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. This is the very picture of the gospel. Here's Barabbas, he's in prison. He's a murderer, an enemy of the state. He deserves punishment, but he gets freedom. Here's Jesus, the only one who fully deserves freedom, but he goes and takes punishment instead. Did Jesus on this day set a captive free by his death? Literally, in his death, Jesus took Barabbas' place. A guilty man walked free. He walked out of his cell, probably dazed and confused, to the shouts of the crowd, and Barabbas breathed the clean air. As Jesus was hanging and suffering on a cross, Barabbas was strolling free. He'd been granted a free pardon, a new lease of life, a pardon that only kings and queens can give. Just think of Barabbas walking free while Jesus breathes his last. And there you will see the heart of Christianity, Because Christians are not people who think they are better than anyone else. Christians don't think they are morally good and righteous. No. They're people who say, at my heart, I'm just like Barabbas. I'm guilty, maybe not of murder and insurrection, but guilty nonetheless. Guilty of thousands and thousands of sins. Many of them unknown to other people. Deserving of the punishment that a holy God would see fit. And Jesus took our place so that we could walk free. He was our substitute. So though he didn't know it, Barabbas was the first of many, wasn't he? For who is ultimately responsible for Jesus' death? Some have criticized the New Testament, said it's anti-Semitic. You know, the Jews, responsible. But actually, the, the text makes it very clear the Gentiles were equally culpable with Pilate and his political machinations and with the, uh, the soldiers who were pagan Gentiles and with, they were the ones that uh, put him to death. Jews and Gentiles are in it together. But, you know, they're not the ones who are ultimately responsible for Jesus' death. Christians know that we are. We are. It had to happen. The righteous one for the unrighteous many to bring us to God so we could see his face and his smile there was no other way an old hymn says there is a green hill far away without a city wall where our dear lord was crucified who died to save us all there was no other good enough to pay the price of sin he only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in jesus death on the cross was a substitution True story. Two Chinese brothers, young brothers, lived in San Francisco in the early 1900s. They looked very alike. The older brother was hardworking, responsible, but the younger one was rebellious and on the wrong side of the law. The younger brother got into gambling, and one night he had a fight with someone over a card game. He accidentally killed the man he was fighting. He ran away. He ran home. He got out of his bloody clothes, and he tried to hide them. And then he left town. But too many people had identified him. And the older brother saw all this and he knew what would happen. He knew the police were going to come looking for his brother and he would be caught eventually and executed. So he went home and put on his brother's bloodstained clothes. And when the police came, they arrested him. He was tried. He was a bit older but similar in height, size, and looks. And being the brother, he looked just like him, and he was tried and executed for that crime. Sometime later, the younger brother returned. He learned what had happened. He was shaken to the core. He went to the police and confessed. He said, I was the one that did it. But do you know what they said? We can't execute two people for the same crime. You are free to go. The penalty has been paid. His brother was a substitute. Now, what does this mean for us? Two things. The end of guilt and the end of shame. The end of guilt. For all who trust in Jesus' grace alone, his blood shed for their sins, his life poured out for them, you can receive his forgiveness today for whatever you've done. Have you ever come to Jesus and asked him simply to forgive you? His arms are outstretched to you today. The end of guilt, the clearing of the slate, but there's more. There's the end of shame as well. Now, I've always been a bit unclear on the difference between guilt and shame, they certainly overlap, but I've been helped recently reading a book about depression by a minister and a scholar. Uh, Christian teacher called Mark Maynell. Mark has written a book called When Darkness Seems My Closest Friend, Reflections on Life and Ministry with Depression. And in it, he talks about shame. The difference between guilt and shame is this. Guilt says, I've done something bad. Shame says, I am bad. Guilt says, I've done something bad, but shame says, I am bad. I'm ashamed of myself. For the shamed person, forgiveness only offers a partial respite. It's not enough to be just forgiven if you're shamed. The only hope, Mark writes, is for the supposedly unlovable person to find acceptance and welcome, to bask in the reassurance of knowing that they are lovable and acceptable. Anything less is profoundly threatening. Note that it is more than being loved and accepted in the past. That doesn't guarantee the future for the shamed person. Because there's always the anxiety, however deeply buried, that when others find out about the real me, they will eventually run a mile. For shame convinces me that I am unlovable and unacceptable. So he says, divine acceptance, acceptance from God, elicits joy. Only God can truly heal the wounds of shame. Other people can only go so far. This joy is everlasting. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is what we need more than anything. And that is what we get at the cross. The end of shame. The remedy for our shame is deep love and acceptance, and that is what the cross does. Do you know this? Do you know that in the eyes of the most important person in the universe, you can be loved and accepted in Jesus? See how he died. Learn Jesus and put away your shame. See how he died. Learn how much he loves you. Because that is what we must learn from sitting at the foot of the cross. Jesus asked that question, didn't he? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But now we know the answer to the question. The answer to the question is for us. For us. That's why he was forsaken. And Jesus knew the answer too. He did it all for love's sake. Not because of your goodness, or because you're great, or because of your gifts, but because he chose to love you unconditionally, knowing everything about you. So then what is the fitting response from us to such a Lord? It is to give him the highest honor, to give him the highest seat of honor in our lives, to to put him on the throne. You know, there's one person in all of this sad story who gets it, and he's the guy overseeing the crucifixion, the Roman centurion, and at the end of our passage, As he sees how Jesus died, he shouts out, Surely this man was the Son of God. Now, throughout Mark's Gospel, spiritual powers, demons, have been trying to blurt out, This is the Son of God, and Jesus has been telling them to shut up. And God the Father has spoken out twice. First of all in Jesus' baptism, then in his transfiguration in chapter 9, and declared, This is my Son my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him, but here for the very first time, a human being gets it. Even higher than saying you're the Christ, this centurion confesses he was surely the son of God. Of all people, a Roman soldier, a pagan, he's not got his theology lined up at all. This guy is probably a worshipper of several gods. Dread to think about his, his personal life. A Roman soldier used to beating people up for a living is the first human in the gospel to get it. Why does Mark record him saying it? Because just before this moment, the curtain in the temple has been ripped in two from top to bottom. Only a divine hand could do that. Showing now that all may enter into the presence of God. We're welcome now because of the cross. And the first one in, is a pagan Gentile who is totally messed up. He doesn't know much, but he does see Jesus. Now, what about you, friend? I don't know your heart. Are you here as a person who knows, actually, you've never really trusted Christ? You're still trying to impress God with your own moral goodness? Come on. You should see by now that the cross means if there was any other way for us to earn acceptance with the holy God, Jesus wouldn't have had to go through it. To see the cross and then insist on your own goodness is insulting. So now today, let me ask, will you bow to, to Jesus as the Lord of all of you and come all in, whatever may come. Admit your sin and your moral weakness. Believe that he died for such as you. And come to Jesus asking him now, maybe for the first time, to forgive you and give you the new birth that only he can give. I'm going to pray something that's uh, known as a sinner's prayer. I'm going to pray it, but maybe you want to pray it with me. And as the musicians will come out while we're praying that, and then they're going to sing to us. We'll just have time to reflect and meditate while they sing and then finally we'll join in one uh, song together let's pray